time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cycling, and related topics. The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show is heard every Saturday morning, 7.30 a.m. in Northeastern Ohio on WJCU 88.7 FM and streamed at WJCU.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. This is our show for August 22nd, 2020. I'd like to begin by letting you know that the radio portion of the Outspoken Cyclist will be changing on Saturday, September 5th. We will be moving from 7.30 to 8 a.m., and the show will be one half hour instead of an hour. For the extended version of the show each week, you'll be able to continue to download your podcast at 8.30 a.m. or you can always go to OutspokenCyclist.com and the show will be available there just by clicking play, also at 8.30 a.m. So then what's in store for you on the show this week? Well, I believe both of my guests offer up some most interesting and informative entertainment today. We begin in the Bronx. Dr. John Lohner is an internist and the medical director of the Montefiore Medical Center, Moses Campus in the Bronx. It's a huge teaching facility, and it was literally on the front lines of the pandemic, having almost every one of its 700 beds plus most of the ICU occupied by COVID patients at the height of New York's outbreak. But I discovered John through an article he wrote for Bicycling this month, and I tracked him down for a delightful and informative conversation. Guest number two this week is not new to the Outspoken Cyclist, but it's been a while since we spoke with him. In fact, it was in June of 2017 when his first book, A Hole in the Wind, was published. Now David Goodrich, the retired climatologist, offers up a new book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean. Now the retired climatologist offers up a new book, It's titled A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, and David Goodrich travels again by bicycle through the northern dominion of oil, from the tar sands of Canada to the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota. It's an incredible view of how oil, both boom and bust, has been and still is such a huge industry in the U.S. So let's begin with my conversation with Dr. John Lohner. It isn't too often that you meet someone who absolutely knows what he or she is going to be when they grow up. And when you do, you realize it just sounds so right. I caught up with John in his office at Montefiore Medical Center on Thursday. Occasionally, you'll hear his office phone buzzing, but we still had a great conversation. Hello, John. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. It's always nice to see a picture of a doctor, uh, the headlining an article in Bicycling Magazine. And in fact, on August 10th, your headline was, I'm a frontline COVID doctor. My daily rides keep me sane. That is a sentiment I have been hearing for the last 40 some odd years, usually from wives who say, if my husband doesn't ride his bike, I would probably kill him. (laughs) So I understand that. But I want to begin really with your cycling history, because 
before you actually went to medical school, you were a pro racer. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. I was uh, really fortunate and enough to have uh, a lot of good people around me, and uh, including my family, who were enormously supportive. No one else in my family uh, really were part of any organized sports, let alone cycling. And uh, when I was 13, 14, money that I had saved up cutting lawns, uh, shoveling snow during the winter, babysitting, I used to purchase what I thought was a really great bicycle from a, a, a local bike shop in Queens, New York. And um, I got on that, and within a day or two, you could not pry me off of it with a crowbar. Uh, something clicked, something uh, just struck a chord. And I had absolutely no idea what in God's name I was doing or how to get involved in the sport. But I did buy every single magazine I could get my hands on and studied it and studied it and studied it and uh, was uh, was lucky enough to, to, to come across uh, someone by the name of Al Tofield, who was the president of the Casino Cycling Club in New York and had been a member of the United States Cycling Federation and uh, told me that I should come club racing and see, you know, see if uh, this is something that I want to do. And I did and, and just took it hook, line and sinker, got my license and, and uh, knew that that's what I not just wanted to do, but what I needed to do. It was immediately a very, very, very strong passion. Uh, something that, uh, without uh, without sounding arrogant, it was something that I knew that I could do, and uh, was almost white hot focused on it uh, right from the beginning. And at 15, I started doing my first uh, licensed races and got reasonably good enough to start traveling and sort of uh, seeing what I could do and proving myself and. Uh, at 18, had the uh, opportunity to go and race in Europe, and I spent a spring in Europe, in Italy, in Austria, Germany, even in what was then Yugoslavia along the, uh, the Adriatic coast, and uh, did fairly well, and came back and, and did uh, national championships, and uh, in my second senior national championships, I was part of the, the national champion winning team time trial squad, and we actually set a national record. The second place team actually was uh, was made up by an impressive quartet of riders. Uh, second place was the team was Bobby Julek, Lance Armstrong, Steve Larson, uh, and Rishi Graywall. So uh, I would say that we earned that championship. And things started to, to continue to move from there. And before I knew it, I had done well enough to uh, get offered a, a pro contract. And I turned pro with uh, the Saturn cycling team and was with them for a couple of years. And then uh, after, oh, God, I guess maybe a total of four four seasons pro, I got the, uh, the, the, the bug came back to me regarding medicine. And uh, medicine actually was my first love. Uh, I fell in love with science and anatomy and physiology in the seventh grade. <laughs> uh, so I knew that that was something that was going to be in my future. And even after I had found cycling, uh, I knew cycling needed to uh, be the first in line for my efforts uh, and focus uh, chronologically. Uh, I could be an older student. I was never going to be an older neo-pro. Uh, so it really, it, I was, I was really very, very fortunate to at a very early age, find uh, not just one, but two C 
significant uh, passions and loves that would really guide me and be present and sort of dominate uh, my life uh, from that point on. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Dr. John Lohner. He is one of the frontline COVID doctors in New York at the Montefiore Medical Center Moses Campus in Bronx. Uh, The Bronx. I guess you should say the Bronx. It's, yeah, it's, it's the Bronx, right? I mean, each borough has its way of being uh, being referred to. Right. But we are, uh, Montefiore Medical Center is one of the largest medical centers in the city. It's certainly the 400-pound gorilla in the Bronx. It is a very, very large academic medical center, quaternary care, referrals, referral-based uh, medical center uh, like uh, Mount Sinai, Columbia. I mean, it's all on that par. And uh, my campus, which is the, the, the mothership or the main campus for the medical center, which is comprised of three uh, inpatient facilities in the borough, uh, we have uh, a 700-bed uh, adult uh, hospital and a 142-bed dedicated children's hospital. Wow. Uh, so we are, we are busy here. And, and uh, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, uh, we ran at capacity just about 365 days a year. So I'm in Cleveland Clinic territory and University Hospital. Mm. So I'm I'm aware of uh, you know these big hospitals that do all kinds of great work. And I think both UH and the clinic are teaching hospitals. The fact that this article that you wrote had very little to say about your cycling career was pretty <laughs> was <laughs> was pretty quiet on your part. That's pretty stellar, and it was certainly at a time when there were some great people racing bikes. But clearly you were one of those people, like Eric Hyden, who said, no, I have a different future. Yeah, and, and that was always the approach. I, I knew, um, you know, my days, my full-time days uh, within the sport uh, were really going to be very limited. And medicine was always going to be at least a focus. And my attempt to make medicine a lifelong pursuit was always going to, was always going to happen. Uh, you know, cycling is still, uh, as a passion, it doesn't leave you. And it's still a, a very, very important part of my life. It's an important part of my health, both physical and mental, which uh, really a lot of that article was about right. and uh, continues to be so. And, and I will tell you, I am indebted to the sport uh, to a point where that is, that is hard to explain because what it has given me in terms of experiences, in terms of friendships, uh, in terms of my own uh, health and and uh, perception uh, has really been priceless, and it continues to do so. Uh, I, I consider myself very, very lucky to be able to, to still participate at a level and to a degree that I can, and um, I still uh, in, in enjoy it tremendously. Well, and I know that you ride daily. As do so yeah. many people, you have found that cycling, it is one of those things you can get out by yourself and do and not have to think about, well, I can't be with people. We can't be shoulder to shoulder anymore in a Peloton. You know, we have to yep. do this individually. And I know you tend to ride regardless of whatever else happened that day, which is which is part of the article. I, I want to ask you before, we're going to take a short break in a moment, but I want to ask you uh, about how cycling informs your work or vice versa. So mm-hmm. what did you get out of cycling that you took into medicine 
that you feel like you use all the time? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and I will tell you uh, my experiences and, and participation in cycling and my now my current professional life uh, that they, they give and take from each other uh, in a bi-directional fashion. There's no question. And I think uh, uh, with with riding, the both the, the physical endurance, uh, the mental endurance, the discipline, um, the attention to detail, uh, the systematic approach uh, to training and racing. The uh, and I always describe high level bike racing uh, to people who aren't familiar with the with the sport as a game of chess on wheels played at the highest level of uh, physical output that you can imagine. And so all of that is our skills and I guess lessons that are directly applicable to my current professional life where you've got to be enormously resilient. Uh, and we all know cycling is not uh, uh, for the, the, the weak-minded, that's for sure. Uh, it's a tough man sport, tough person sport. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, these women are quite impressive uh, there's no question, but the degree of resiliency, um, the need to have an open mind, uh, the willingness to continue to learn, to push boundaries, these are all things that are directly applicable to both the disciplines that I have really spent most of my life in. So I, I want to talk to you about staying healthy, but we're going to take a real short break and we'll be right back. We're speaking with Dr. John Lohner. He is with the Montefiore Medical Center Moses Campus in the Bronx, New York. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on the show. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Dr. John Lohner. He has an article in Bicycling Magazine right now called, I'm a Frontline COVID Doctor. My Daily Rides Keep Me Sane. I think you could put, I'm a Frontline Anything in there, and My Daily Rides Keep Me Sane, and a lot of people yes. would, would <laughs> jump right in that. And that's what I want to talk about, staying healthy, being healthy. So do you mm -hmm. think cycling helps you to stay healthy in addition to whatever? I mean, you work insane hours. Yeah, the, the hours uh, definitely can vary. And the extreme end of that range are pretty impressive and pretty demanding. Uh, and there is no question that uh, my the, the riding that I do uh, and the consistency with which I uh, try to do it has a tremendous impact in my stamina for work and my, my overall health. Uh, you know, when you, uh, for me, when you see uh, everyday uh, disease, uh, when you see everyday suffering, uh, when, and certainly during the pandemic, uh, when we were the hottest of the hot spots on the globe, um, the amount of death that one, one was seeing and uh, the morbidity that one was seeing it's a slap in the face almost daily to not take what we have right now for granted, not take your good health uh, for granted, and to continue to live uh, to the fullest extent that one can. 
And for me, uh, part of living and part of getting that out is uh, getting out getting out of life. What I want to get out of it is uh, uh, feeling strong, feeling healthy. Uh, and cycling is uh, the way that I choose to do it. Uh, it's uh, something that gives me great joy uh, and something that uh, helps me mentally. And I think there's certainly plenty of uh, uh, evidence and studies out there that show even improved cognitive function, uh, improved immune status. Um, so your physical resilience uh, is just bolstered by, by all of that. Are there any medical ramifications, any health ramifications of COVID that we might not understand that being active might help as opposed to not hurt? So I hear people are coming out of this disease if they have contracted it with some real problems, you know, heart problems, lung problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think people who go into it being health, although I don't know, I, I don't know if you know this, people going into it being more healthy, m- with better lung function, better heart function, come out of it better? Or is that not showing? You know, that is a, a terrific question. And I would say that that is uh, uh, one of the questions at the heart of uh, this whole disease, right? Uh, really, who is at risk? Are there things that we can do to mitigate that risk? Um, and, these are these are central questions to 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 this to this infection and this disease. Uh, we do know that uh, people who are older, people with uh, a certain uh, type of comorbidity or number of comorbidities, are certainly at higher risk. But that doesn't mean that if you are relatively young and healthy, that you have zero risk. The the crux of the the morbidity for the disease actually comes with one's immune response. The inflammatory response that the virus can produce uh, is off the charts, uh, unlike anything that we have seen before. Uh, But it is still a question of uh, what can we detect or what are the markers that uh, tell us, oh, your immune system is going to, to, to go through the roof. Your immune system is going to be moderate and your immune system will, shouldn't give you any symptoms. We don't know that yet. Uh, so while I would say, generally speaking, uh, the healthier you are, uh, the, the better cardiac function you have, the, the better lung function you have, uh, the better protoplasm, for lack of a better term, that you have, Generally speaking, I would say you have a much better chance of doing just fine uh, should you contract a symptomatic illness. There's one thing to be exposed to the virus. It's another thing to actually contract a true illness uh, from the virus. But if you do contract true illness, uh, you certainly want to go into it uh, previously being extremely healthy uh, rather than somewhat debilitated. Uh, but there, are, there is a tremendous amount of this illness that we really don't know enough about yet. It's that new, and uh, it will be it will be years before we uh, are at a point where we really know uh, a degree that uh, we would all be much, much, much more comfortable with. That's kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, with that said, I will tell you the pace of research, the pace of knowledge. Uh, the degree of our understanding to, at this point in a new phenomenon is also unprecedented. Uh, the, the pace of acquisition of knowledge is uh, just incredible. 
but it's just still too new for us to know everything we really want to know and, and in a way really need to know in order to truly address and control um, a pandemic. So historically, and, and I know you really can't give me a real answer to this. Nobody knows the answer to this. But historically, how long does something like this last? How long can we expect this virus to hang out? Or will it always be here? There seems to be some thinking that it could be around pretty much for the rest of our lives. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, I think there's, there's two parts to this. One is, will the virus be around for good? And two, will uh, a pandemic or a true outbreak uh, uh, be around? Uh, how long will that be around? Because that's really what's impacting uh, our daily lives, uh, our jobs, our health or our loved one's health. Those are really the two questions. And it is very possible, just like influenza, just like the common cold uh, and many other uh, viral illnesses out there, this is likely to be ingrained now in uh, out there in the population for good. It very well possibly could. You know, uh, for MERS uh, and, and other similar coronaviruses that uh, caused uh, epidemics and outbreaks, serious ones, uh, back in, I think, 2014 and, and, and early 2000s, only one of those viruses we actually truly eradicated because the, the reservoir of those viruses were very well uh, delineated and, and very limited, and we were able to lim eliminate that reservoir. But everything else has been basically, it's still out causing a real outbreak. Once again, let me remind our listeners that we're speaking with Dr. John Lohner. He is the medical director and an internist at the Montefiore Medical Center, Moses Campus in the Bronx. He was also a pro bike racer back in the day, and I still find that whole explanation of how you went from racing to medicine fascinating, and I really like it a lot. So what's next for us? You as a physician, us as patients, I know we have to wait for a vaccine. Do you think there will be a vaccine that will actually work in the near future? Yeah, it's, you know, the, the va vaccine, I think, will come. Uh, there are a few uh, companies that are uh, really working very, very hard and, and have been allocated a lot of resources to, uh, to develop a vaccine. It's certainly not if, it is when. Uh, and, and then once it's developed and it's, it's available, what is the efficacy of the vaccine? So there, there will be a vaccine. It will not be in 2020. Uh, I think the, the, the most optimistic that one could be is somewhere around mid or maybe even the second half of 2021, certainly before it is produced or anything that becomes available is produced at a level that can be distributed and effectively administered uh, worldwide to kind of uh, uh, control this. This is, this is really part of a new normal right now. This will be with us for the rest of this calendar year and certainly well into 2021. I don't think that this is going to be truly in our rear view mirror uh, until 2022. Uh, there are all sorts of cultural and, and, and economic uh, ramifications to this that I think will uh, persist uh, uh, for a while after uh, the, the physical entity begins to truly cool off. So there's an awful lot for all of us. I think masking and distancing and hand hygiene 
this is going to be uh, be around uh, for for a little while. From a, a healthcare delivery perspective and from a, a physician's perspective, we are really now uh, looking to uh, continue to to retool and learn from our experiences during the pandemic, uh, prepare for a potential second wave, and nobody knows if, when, and how bad that will be. And uh, certainly to regain uh, the trust of the public that hospitals are not COVID hotbeds and that you're not going to come in here, contract the illness, and die. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the real secondary problems from the pandemic is that everybody stayed away from the hospital and understandably and rightfully so uh, because during the peak uh, of our 700, uh, 700 beds, we had about 689 patients who were COVID positive in the hospital. We had somewhere around the, of the order of 152 in ICU level care and uh, even more than that uh, dependent on mechanical ventilation. And uh, the hospital at that point was not a fun place, not a, not a, a safe place for anyone in the public uh, to be in. And that really produced a phenomenon where there were an enormous thousands of people, particularly here in the Bronx, who uh, needed urgent care, uh, people who had strokes, people who had heart attacks, people who had bad uh, flares of emphysema and heart failure who were too afraid to come to the hospital and, and died because of that lack of care. So there are secondary uh, adverse effects that the pandemic produces aside from the actual disease of the infectious entity. Uh, and we're trying to get people to, 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 get, to, to re-engage in the care that they desperately need. They're coming back and we are learning how to do that safely. And so that's really been on the plate since we uh, uh, really landed on the other side of that peak, that pandemic peak. Well, I know you probably eat, drink, and sleep medicine, but I have some questions that mm. are a little more personal that maybe sure. will, will take your mind off for just a couple of minutes. I know you're even still at the office. It's really time for you to go home soon. Uh, what kind of a bike are you riding currently? I imagine you started out on a steel bike, a real steel is real bike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My, you know, the, the the very first real racing bike that I that I ever had was. Um, a uh, Columbus SLX tubed uh, Francesco Moser nice. uh, race bike with Campagnolo Super Record on it. I really wish I had that again. It was such a chrome, chrome forks and chrome rear triangle. It was red with white lettering. And, and Francesco Moser was really one of my first uh, sort of cycling heroes. The, the, the man who uh, really got me into the sport and got me uh, involved hook, line, and sinker even before I started racing was... Uh, someone from the neighborhood uh, by the name of Angelo Vizzoni, and he was an Italian immigrant, worked in construction, and was passionate about cycling. And he gave me all of his, all of his magazines and, and, and videotapes on Francesca Moser and his hour record and so on. And so I took that hook, line, and sinker, and Moser became my first cycling hero as well. So, but I've been really lucky to uh, be involved with some uh, really good, uh, good people in, in this in this region, and and I've been lucky enough to um, have some sponsorships still, believe it or not. And I ride specialized. I have uh, an S Works uh, Venge and an S Works Tarmac uh, SL6, and love, 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 love that stuff. So I'm I'm riding around on some 
a pretty swanky piece of equipment. <laughs> I zoot, as we yeah. say. Well, okay, so these are questions that have nothing to do with bicycling or sure. medicine. What's your favorite food? <laughs> oh, boy, that, that's, a, that's a tough question. I got to tell you, I really like a good hamburger. <laughs> and uh, luckily, I've uh, been able to do a lot of grilling this, this summer. Really good Mexican food and good Thai food uh, is uh, they're they're really stand good good standbys for me. Uh, and uh, uh, for a while during this pandemic, that was that wasn't available. Right uh, now that things have been sort of reopened and uh, every first for pickup and delivery, and now with uh, al fresco dining all over the place, uh, I'm able to. To, to really re-engage in some of my favorite foods again. See, it's almost like you're back in Europe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you get to eat outside. I love eating outside. That's my favorite. It's one of the good things here in the city. I mean, restaurants have gotten permits to take over curbside space and streets are really lined with and very creative and really pretty streets that are cordoned off for, uh, uh, for dining. And what these restaurants have been doing has been really lovely, really good. Well, I, I'm not sure... I don't already know the answer to this, but maybe I'll be wrong. Mm -hmm. Do you have any pets? <laughs> I don't have any pets of my own, but I have a pet by proxy. So my girlfriend has a 12-year-old Shih Tzu, and I was never a small dog person. I actually grew up with Akitas, uh, you know, 85, 90, 100-pound dogs. Uh, love them, love them, love them. Uh, and was never thought of myself as a small dog person, but uh, this little thing really pulled my heartstrings. So I will have to admit, I got to call her my pet. And yeah, yeah, I've got a little Shih Tzu. <laughs> yeah, my parents had Shih Tzus. They have great personalities. They're adorable. Yeah, they do. So the mm -hmm. last question is about music. What kind of music do you like? So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I listen to a, a fair amount of music when I'm doing a lot of my solo rides. So I'll, I'll have to say I, I group my music into three categories. One would be contemporary, two would be what I grew up with, and then three, some of the classics that were around before I was born. And so contemporary, I would say things like uh, Kings of Leon, Mumford and Sons, uh, Florence and the Machine, London Grammar, Beck, folks like that. Arcade Fire is really good. That kind of contemporary stuff I really like. And then stuff that I grew up with, you know, it's U2, it's Simple Minds, it's Squeeze. It's, those are really, um, really kind of classics for my, in, in my book. And then, you know, some of the, the more classical stuff um, would be, you know, Led Zeppelin and The Who and Stones. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, those are all fantastic. Bruce Springsteen and, Odessa and Daft Punk, these are, I guess it's a pretty eclectic, I uh, guess. A, eclectic <laughs> group. But uh, then I, I have to tell you during certain times and certainly times of the year or certain moods, I mean, I, I love classical and, and, uh, you know, would, would try to make it to the Philharmonic a couple of times a year. And uh, uh, so it's, it's really all kinds, but I definitely have certain niches that I, I really like to like to listen to. Well, I certainly appreciate you taking so much time to talk with me today. Once again, we've been talking with Dr. John Lohner. He is an internist, 
at Montefiore Medical Center, Moses Campus in the Bronx. He's also the medical director, was on the front lines. A great article he wrote for Bicycling Magazine. It was published on August 10th. It was titled, I'm a Frontline COVID Doctor. My Daily Rides Keep Me Sane. Stay with the rubber side down, dude. And I am so happy to have been able to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Dr. John Lohner joined me from his office at the Montefiore Medical Center, Moses Campus, in the Bronx. If you are interested in reading his August 10th article, I'm a Frontline COVID Doctor, My Daily Rides Keep Me Sane, you can log on to www.bicycling.com forward slash culture. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll speak with David Goodrich about his voyage across an ancient ocean. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland. 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. Not being a geologist or a climatologist, not even playing one on TV, little did I know that millions of years ago there was an ocean in North America, or should I say what we now know is North America. And from that ocean comes oil, lots of it, and in more than one variety. David Goodrich is the former head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate and Observation and Monitoring Program. He also served as the director of the UN Global Observing System in Geneva, Switzerland. Back in 2017, we talked with David about his first book, A Hole in the Wind, as he traveled across the U.S. by bicycle, talking to folks about the climate and their thoughts about it. On August 4th, his new book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, was published, and I caught up with him while he and his family were quietly vacationing in the Catskills. Hi, David. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. It's so good to actually get to see you. We are on Zoom. It's wonderful to be here to be here and to be back with you. Well, the last time we spoke, you had just published A Hole in the Wind. And now you have a brand new book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean. And who knew that there was an ocean underneath the United States somewhere? You did. It's less uh, an ocean that's, that's underground, but rather back now uh, hundreds of millions of years ago that there was an ocean across the middle of North America that went up the Great Plains. And the title of the book comes from my writing from two different oil fields, one in Canada and one in the United States. But it occurred to me that I was writing across the same ancient ocean that generated both of those oil fields. My, my background is, is actually as a sailor. I used to drive oceanographic ships for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and it felt like this, this would be another voyage. Well, I knew you worked for NOAA. Somehow, I don't remember you actually were the captain of these ships. I was never actually a commanding officer. I spent three years at sea on the on NOAA ships, and I find a lot of a lot of similarities between being at sea and being out on the plains. 
because you can see for, you know, it's see when you're, when you're approaching land, usually the first landfall you make is a lighthouse and out on the plains, the, the next town you see, usually what you see is a water tower. That's right. <laughs> when we rode Ragbri, you know, it was so hot and it was like, okay, where's that next water tower? <laughs> and then you knew you were coming up on a little town. I knew you were going to say that. You are a climatologist. I know you are retired, but you had some such interesting things to say about your last book. You went and spoke with people all over the country about their thinking about what was happening with climate change. Now, this book, The Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, is very different, and it's fascinating. And one of the things that I didn't realize was how vast these oil fields were. So explain the geological background of the ancient ocean. Well, in past geological eras, um, really between 100 and 400 million years ago, sea level was much higher, as much as 800 feet higher, and it was much warmer. Um, There was a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And over millions of years, you have phytoplankton that are using photosynthesis. They're taking carbon dioxide out uh, out of the atmosphere, and then they die and they sink to the bottom. And over millions of years, those layers of dead dead phytoplankton, basically dead plants, get covered by sediments. And over periods of geologic time, they get compressed and gradually they turn into oil. And that oil will, will migrate to, to places where it can't, can't rise any further, basically gets trapped under, under certain layers. And these are some of the big uh, oil deposits that that folks in oil and gas are looking for all the time. In the case of the two fields that I went to, first the, the Alberta oil sands, which is also known as the, as the tar sands, is a field that's very close to the surface or relatively close to the surface, but all the lighter parts of the oil have either been evaporated away or migrated someplace else. And what you're left with is, is very heavy tar that is embedded in sands. It takes a lot to get that oil, which is more properly called bitumen, out of the sands. That's part of what makes the Alberta oil sands rather problematic as a source of energy. On the other side of the ancient ocean is the Bakken oil field of North Dakota. That's about 1,100 miles away, and that was my ride from Alberta, the town of Fort McMurray, to uh, the Bakken fields that centered in the town of Williston. And in the Bakken field, what you have is is oil shale, uh, oil that's embedded in shale rock um, that is thousands of feet down. And what they do is to drill down and go into these layers of shale and break it up hydraulically. This is the process called hydraulic fracturing. And that basically knocks the oil out of the particles. And they'll use various combinations of sand and things to keep the, keep the cracks open. And, and that oil will, um, will then flow to the surface. But it's a complicated process that um, also releases a lot, of other, a lot of other things. But one of the things you can see in the, the brines that come up from these from the, the Bakken field is 
salt water. And you can actually smell in the tanks salt water from there 400 million years ago. That really is salt water from the ancient ocean. Those were, those were the two fields that I, I rode one from one to the other and a little bit about how they originated. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with David Goodrich. His new book is A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean. And that ancient ocean was right here in the U.S., not outside of the country. And it actually, there's a lot of controversy over what we're going to talk about here. The book starts out that you joined some march in D.C. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of this idea for you to sort of track down one oil field to the other? Sure. I mean, one of the things that has been uh, very controversial now for more than a decade is what's called the Keystone XL pipeline. Is a pipeline that it was to connect the oil sands in Alberta to refineries in the U.S. And one of the bigger climate scientists in our field, James Hansen, talked about it as, as pulling the plug to one of the biggest carbon reservoirs on the planet. And that opening up the oil sands or the tar sands to development is basically unleashing all of this carbon to the atmosphere. He said um, it would be game over for climate. And so that's, that brought a lot of people demonstrating against the Keystone pipeline in Washington. And it wasn't just climate activists like me. It was also, the demonstration was, uh, they referred to themselves as the, the Cowboys and Indians Alliance, where there were people from uh, Nebraska, uh, ranchers, as one of the people opposed to it, and Native Americans from a number of different reservations across South Dakota and Nebraska. And they came to D.C. and and I was basically looking kind of amazed. It was a day when there were teepees set up on the National Mall and people riding horses through the middle of town. You don't see that in Washington all that much. Yeah, not too often. Interesting. You actually got sort of dropped off by plane way up there in Western Canada. And that's where you started your trip east. You make some some really interesting points right away about people who either are really for this and people who are really against this, this idea of taking all of this oil out. We already are producing lots of oil in this country. Why do we need to do this? What is the thinking about draining the earth of all possible oil? Well, part of it is that this is really right now, the energy that is running the global economy. You know, we still drive cars and heat houses. Um, the people in the oil sands region, as anybody in, in oil and gas, will say, we're doing a dirty job producing something that everybody needs. Back in the 70s, there was um, certainly a scarcity of oil and gas in the U.S. And the, the questions of how much oil we're, we're importing uh, was a very big deal. Now the United States is the biggest oil producer in the world, um, more than Saudi Arabia, more than Russia, and more than Canada. And arguably, there is a glut of oil and gas in North America and, and in the world, which is part of the reason that oil prices have 
drops so steadily. So why produce these? It's, it's real simple. The people uh, are looking to make money off of it for the, the oil sands. This is what's keeping the economy of Alberta afloat. They are an oil producing region. It is a big part of the gross national product of Canada. And for people that I met there, it's like, okay, this is my living, my retirement, all, all of that good, good stuff. And you're, you're trading that off against uh, what's pretty clearly a major threat to the climate of the planet, including the climate of, of Canada and Alberta. One of the things that's happening as a result of global warming is that fires are much more frequent in the West and, and in Western Canada as well. Canada's biggest natural insured disaster was the fires in 2016, which almost wiped out the town. And, you know, you can make a pretty good argument that this climate change, global warming, contributed to the fires that almost burned out the town of Fort McMurray. As we are seeing fires in the western part of the country right now, and temperatures, I I mean, Death Valley recorded 130 degrees yesterday or the day before. There's a lot more to learn about the actual oil sands and the tar sands and the processes and all that. But I want people to get that from your book. I want to know some other things about your journey. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your bike journey, which is, after all, what's so exciting. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. back on The Outspoken Cyclist. We're speaking with David Goodrich. We've spoken with him in the past with his first book, A Hole in the Wind, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. His new book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, was just published on August 4th. Who's the pub? Oh, it's um, Jessica. Pegasus Books? Pegasus. She always sends me new books, and it's always exciting when I get a package from Jessica. When we left off, I said we were going to start talking about your journey. So let's begin in Canada, you flew your bike in on this little plane with, I can't remember his name, but he sounded like a real good cowboy who could fly. (laughs) And then start coming east. Tell us the kinds of things you were doing along your way. You did not camp this time. You actually decided (laughs) to put a roof over your head each night, which I thought was interesting. Well, that turned out to be a a pretty good idea. I'll I'll mention in a second, there's a sign outside of Fort McMurray, which is where the, the oil sands are, that says no gas or services next 200 kilometers. And I remember pulling up next to that sign and thinking, boy, I really better have things together right now. <laughs> so I started south and, and there weren't any motels or anything, but what there were were uh, these, uh, what they call the man camps, uh, more properly lodges that are sort of giant encampments, sort of super duper motels for oil field workers. So I stayed in in a man camp on the way south to get myself to where I could get to to regular normal motels and things. But I was riding through the the boreal forest, which is the far northern forest. And outside of these oil developments, there isn't a lot there. 
later I was thinking, well, maybe I should have brought stuff for camping. But a little further down the road, there was a guy said, we're talking about camping. And I said, it's okay. I know about, I know about the bears and I know you have to hang food and stuff. And he said, no, it's not the bears I'd be worried about so much. It's wolves. It's like, oh, real wolves up there, huh? (laughs) It's like there's this qualitative difference between hanging food and being food. (laughs) But probably the hardest part was getting through the northern forest. And I had one day where I just got blown out of it, where I got 10 miles down the road. And I was thinking, if I keep this up, I'm going to be in sort of horizontal rain in my face. I'm going to be in hypothermia land um, with nobody around. So I, I ended up having to turn back that day and, and, and I lost a day of riding. But, you know, it's real quiet country. You'll scare ducks up every now and then. Uh, so you'll see pipelines going across and under the road from time to time. And not too much else. Big oil trucks. I got caught in a big hailstorm near the Kikino Matisse settlement with basically a First Nations reservation in Canada. And I had a woman pull over in the middle of the hailstorm. She had three kids in her SUV and just rolled down the window and says, you need a place to come in. And I said, you know, I'm really wet. And she said, yeah, come on in and, you know, shoot her kid to the back seat. And we just waited out the the storm. When I left, you know, she was looking for something just to give me. And she gave me this juice box, which is kind of what you would expect from a mom. And I remember sitting in the motel room that night and it was like, this was the magic juice box. (laughs) It really happened. But then I went across the prairie meeting another former guest of yours, Lynn Salvo. She was on her way across Canada, and we we sort of had a a meme going between the two of us, which was, meet me in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I was going south, and she was going east, and we we rode together for a day or two. Yeah, she's an interesting woman. She's the one who sets Guinness records, I think, for riding back and forth by herself, and she's great. She's a very interesting woman. So what do you think was different about meeting up with people on this trip. Were you talking about climate to people as you encountered them? I spoke with some folks in the oil fields, which was actually quite enlightening. There was a guy who actually took me around the oil sands uh, out of Fort McMurray in Alberta. And as you might expect, he, you know, he's saying, well, yeah, there's some, some problems with climate, but you know, we're really working on making this a cleaner operation, a more efficient operation than than we have been. And, you know, he said, tell all the people down south that, you know, we're not bad people up here. Interesting. I, I get that. And I remember um, I got to sit in when I was in, in this Bakken oil field in North Dakota. I got to go to a, what was essentially a town fair where there was music happening. And I'd read about a good bit about the Bakken. And I realized I was sitting right next to a group of Tongans, just big Polynesian guys and their families. And, you know, I had this image of of this giant Tongan guy holding a little baby and thinking, oh yeah, there are people that are putting lives together here in the oil fields. And there are a lot of people who work remotely, and this would be mostly men who work remotely in the oil fields and are sending back paychecks to support families in Minnesota or Nebraska. So there's a lot of the oil and gas industry that is tied into people um, keeping towns and families together. 
the thing that keeps coming up for me is we stopped the construction of the pipeline once. Now it's been reapproved, I think. It's probably hung up in court somewhere. Where are we with the pipeline, the extraction of oil? And I, I know it's going to put a lot of people out of business, but do you think that we need to keep doing this? Short answer is, is I don't. I feel like for if we're going to turn around the problems that we have with climate change, we really sort of have to change how the energy that we use is generated. It's certainly true that backing off on oil and gas, you know, will require people, some people to change what they, uh, what they do and their, their lines of work. At the same time, you have so much wind energy going up in this center of the country, same place you've, you've ridden in Ragbri. Um, I'm sure you've seen all the wind turbines in Iowa. It's hard to go to a place in Iowa where there isn't a, isn't a wind turbine someplace on the horizon. Wind energy is rapidly dropping in cost. It's going up all over the place. Even in Wyoming, which is very much of an oil and gas state, there are some huge wind projects that are going up along the southern tier, which is one of the, one of the windiest places in the country, uh, southern tier of, of uh, Wyoming. There are ways that we can sort of change the direction of this ship. It takes a while to do. Um, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. People in oil and gas talk about, well, if you turn this off tomorrow, then everybody's stuck with no gas at their station and no heat in their house. That's all true. But there's no way you're going to turn that off tomorrow. But we do have to make some rather dramatic reductions in the amount of energy from oil and gas that we use. And in a lot of ways, the Europeans show us the way. They just use a lot less energy per person, per capita, than we do. And arguably, I've lived in Europe, and it's very hard to argue that their standard of living is below ours. Uh, Yeah, I see more hybrid cars on the road than I've ever seen. But we pivoted really, really fast with COVID. People work from home. They're not driving as much. I see gas prices below $2 all the time now. We need to do things to keep fires from exploding in California, from the atmosphere to have 130 degree days, unheard of days. So what do you think we can do as citizens, especially with this upcoming election this fall? Are there things that we can say to our legislators that we can actually let them know that we really are not in favor of all this oil and gas, even though it's going to upset a lot of people. There's a certain amount we can do as individuals um, in terms of conservation and, and reducing carbon footprint is, is the phrase. Right. But I think the real action on this has to be from the political legislative side. Some folks talk about a carbon tax. That may be one part of it. I think when we run our internal combustion engines, we're basically saying we're using the atmosphere as a cost-free dump for carbon dioxide, and that needs to change. There are also some mandates on how much renewable energy gets used to generate electricity. Uh, I know my state, Maryland, has such a thing, has been gradually increasing the amount of renewable energy that's required in generating electricity. And that's actually been quite successful in, in the Northeast and in New York. So these are measures that that we can take, but they only happen through our elected representatives. Most recently, there continues to be an enormous influence of the oil and gas industry in our political landscape. I mean, just the other day, the administration said that they would remove the, the regulations on 
methane that's released when it's when oil and gas drilling is happening. And methane is actually a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. They want to sell it anyway. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Tell me, just to wrap it up, where did you end your trip and then start writing the book? I came through the Bakken field in North Dakota. Really was was like something out of Mordor, my entrance into uh, this town of Williston. It was 95 degrees and I was right at the you know, the town was named Bone Trail. And on the horizon are all of these gas flares. And like, it's, I wouldn't quite say the horizon is on fire, but you can see lots, lots of uh, flaring going on. I rode through this, the Bakken field, but I almost discovered in my, my routing at the end of it was Theodore Roosevelt National Park, um, which was where Teddy was a cowboy. Right. I started reading on what, what Teddy Roosevelt had done during his time as president. And, and his his battles were all against some of the same people that we we have change in order to slow climate change. Teddy Rose, he had the reputation of being the trust buster. Right. He was uh, knocking off the monopolies that dominated the economy at the time. Two of the major ones were Standard Oil, which was John D. Rockefeller's, and the uh, Northern Securities, which was run by J.P. Morgan. So the biggest financier of oil and gas extraction is J.P. Morgan Chase still around. And Standard Oil got broken up into component parts, one of which was Standard Oil of New York and one of which was Standard Oil of New Jersey. That became, One became Exxon, the other became Mobil, and now they're back as Exxon Mobil, the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. So it's like Teddy fought these same people. And this has been done before. What it takes is energy. And there's a distant echo of fights that have been successful, that I, I was quite inspired by hanging out in at Teddy's National Park um, in North Dakota. Let's tell people how they can get a copy of the book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, and I'll let you get on with your fun vacation up in the Catskills. The book called uh, Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean is from Pegasus. It's available on Amazon. It's also available on bookshop.org. You could help support your local your local bookstore. Bookstores are having a hard time right now. Um, and you can get the the book at uh, local stores, including including Barnes and Noble around uh, where I live in Maryland. We've been talking with David Goodrich. This is a new book, Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean. It's about sort of tracking oil from west to east and the oil fields and the pipelines and the things that are affecting climate in a way we may not like. It's a fascinating book. It's a well-written book. I enjoyed reading it. And I really enjoy talking with you. I appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. It's, it's been wonderful to, to, uh, to see you again, Diane. You too. You take care. Enjoy the Catskills. And we'll talk again. David Goodrich's new book, A Voyage Across an Ancient Ocean, was just published by Pegasus Books. It's available from bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, your local bookstore, and wherever else you get your books. My thanks to both Dr. Lohner and David Goodrich for joining me this week. Next week, we have a conversation with record holder and Mountain Bike Hall of Fame inductee, John Stamstead. 21 years ago, John set a world record on his mountain bike traveling 2,465 miles from Canada to Mexico along the Great Divide. And now, Into the Divide, a 52-minute Amazon Prime video was just released to commemorate it.
We'll also catch up with Steve Maxwell and Spencer Martin from The Outer Line to talk about what's happened and what is happening with pro racing. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to take a moment to rate the show on your favorite podcast app and write a review if you're so inclined. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and welcome your comments and thoughts on Twitter and Facebook. Visit OutspokenCyclist.com to hear this and all past shows. We'll be back next week with more great conversation and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.